Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon and dot 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 Alan Niven. Bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. I am. Uh, uh, my my voice is doing the uh, the last stand. It's 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 on its last legs before we uh, we wrap up this uh, this episode. But I had a chance to uh, go over to Aldo Nova's house. Now there. There's a name that a lot of folks haven't heard in a while, but of course he had great success with uh, Fantasy, Fooling Yourself, Monkey on Your Back, and a bunch of other singles back in the day. And he has been locked away since 2008, 12 years, working on a rock opera called The Life and Times of Eddie Gage. So I uh, went over to his house. He, he literally lives 10 minutes from me. And I went over there. And uh, we listened to the demos, and we listened to the uh, final songs, and then, man, this was great. He opened up a drawer with a whole bunch of cassettes, and he was looking for stuff uh, to talk about this uh, life and times of Eddie Gage. And uh, he pulled out a cassette, and he goes, he goes, you're a Bon Jovi fan, aren't you? I go, yeah. He goes, oh, here's some of the uh, early demos that uh, John sent me for the Blaze of Glory album. And we had a chance to listen to them, and it was it was just John and a guitar, just... I don't know, re- recording it, I guess, in his bedroom or whatever. And it was just fascinating because all these great songs like Blaze of Glory, you're now hearing it completely stripped down, you know, scratch vocals, no no big production. And, and so that was that was fascinating for me. And, uh, you know, hey, there you go. And, Al- and Aldo, of course, played on the first uh, Bon Jovi record, you know, Runaway and all that stuff. That's Aldo, folks. He's on there. Him and, and Chuck Berge and, boy, who else is on that? Hugh uh, McDonald. Everybody says, oh, Hugh McDonald's the new bassist. Mm, no, Hugh McDonald was Bon Jovi's first bassist. Anyway, I, I should probably step aside here and let you uh, let you get a word in edgewise. Um, comments. Comments. Well, <clears throat> obviously we've had a little bit of uh, um, teasing with, with John lately. But it was uh, something that I didn't know that Aldo Novo was uh, basically the um, main driving force and and, uh, writer behind Runaway, which in my opinionated point of view, and I am opinionated, um, I thought was the best track off this new album and new... uh, new artist that um, the A&R guy who signed him was playing for me in my uh, little condo at the time. Um, so it's amusing to me that, you know, the great artist Bon Jovi didn't even write that one or, or, or make it into a decent song. It was Aldo. And of course, you know, come the third album with, uh, with Mr. Jovi, you know, Desmond Child had to come in and write their songs. Um, so, yeah, that makes me smile when people refer to Bon Jovi as an artist. He's a pretty entertainer, and that was it. Well, listen, he's a, he's a fantastic entertainer. And, and I have to say, what got me deeply into Bon Jovi was seeing them live, because live, it is a great live show. So, yes, they entertain you, and, and it's 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 fascinating. And I do like the music. Um, but do you know, by the way, session guitarist Tim Pierce? No, I don't. He has worked with uh, Michael Jackson, Roger Waters, Alice Cooper, Johnny Holiday, uh, okay. Phil Collins, 
uh, Rick Springfield, you know, all these people that nobody's ever heard of. But uh, mm-hmm. Tim Tim Pierce uh, also played on Bon Jovi's first album because you know a lot of folks think, well, it was a band. It was it was <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, it was uh, Richie, Alec, Tico, and Davis. Like, no, no, it wasn't. Bon Jovi's first album really was a solo album. And so l- let me go through some of these names. You had uh, Frankie LaRocca who played drums on some of it. You had Chuck Berge, who, uh, if you're not paying attention these days, has been drumming with uh, Billy Joel for 15 years. He took over for Liberty DeVito. You have Hugh McDonald, who plays bass on it. And you're like, well, no, it's Alec John Such. Listen, Alec John Such was a touring musician. When you went to see the Slippery When Wet tour, he was there. When you went to see New Jersey, he was there. But the guy that played on the albums was Hugh McDonald. And Hugh McDonald has always played on Bon Jovi's albums. And people go, well, why, why wasn't he in the band? It's Because you know what? The 80s were all about how you looked. And Alec John Sucks looked tough and looked the part. And hey, well, I'm going to stop you right there. Yes? Yeah, because... Jack Russell know, was very pretty. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. And I'll tell you something else. My bands did not employ ringers. Somebody actually wrote me and said something about um, uh, uh, somebody playing on the Appetite for Destruction. I got I to gotta find out the name here. I'm going to have to do a quick research. And it's like, no, he didn't, nobody played on... on um, on those songs what are you talking about like stop it but uh let me just quickly finish with this but with aldo nova and the bon jovi thing um Hugh mcdonald he played on those albums because alec just was there for the look and if Hugh mcdonald didn't look like an accountant he would have been a huge massive rock star but because he didn't have the look that look good in Metal Edge or in Hit Parader or in Rip Magazine to to put up on your walls. They said, "Hey, let's put this guy in the band, and he'll go tour." But anyway, um, oh, you'll have to help out my old brain here. But to be fair, the Rolling Stones had a keyboard player in the very early days, um, and right through the '60s, who virtually never ever got to get on stage with them. And if you see a photograph of him, you can kind of understand it because he looks more like a bouncer than he does a, a, a piano player. But he was a really, really good piano player. So, I mean, you know, Mick Jagger set the precedent there, I suppose. What was that guy? I, I, hold on. I'm going to look in our texts uh, because I sent you that the other day and asked you and said, what's this guy playing on this on this album here? Hold on. What, what's keep, keep talking while I find this... Uh... Oh, Dan Huff. So, so there's this rumor that a guy named Dan Huff played on Sweet Child of Mine. Uh, how incredibly not realistic is that? That is totally non-realistic. Um, there were no ringers for, um, for guns. And on top of that, my direction to my clink was let the band be the band. Your job is to capture the best performances that they can give you. And it's about the band, and it's not about making a slick album for radio. 
it's all about the band. So if I'd found out that Mike Klink had brought a ringer in, he'd have been fired that day. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to say, we're trying to see where that rumor comes from. I see it in a, uh, let's see, I see it here. It says, uh, the songs that Dan Huff included, uh, Here I Go Again by Whitesnake, the 1987 radio version. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that was uh, Vivian Campbell that went in and did that. Quick editor's note, actually, Dan did play on that. Whoops, little mistake. Anyway, uh, back to the show. But there is an interview here in the Guns N' Roses forums that says, uh, Dan Huff, blah, 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 is a Nashville-based producer who has worked with Faith Hill, Guns N' Roses, Megadeth, Michael Bolton, Paula Abdul, yada, yada, yada. And he says that he has done the opening rift on Sweet Child of Mine. And I'm like, bullshit. I'm like, you know what? If you're saying that you're working with Faith Hill, Guns N' Roses, Michael Bolton, I think you're just throwing some 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 serious bullshit out there so that somebody will check you out and go, oh, this guy's got to be amazing. But listen, I, I don't know Dan Huff personally, but it sounds like it's a little bit of somebody selling us some snake oil. Just, just <laughs> yeah, he must have a little bit of Trump in him. Yeah, that's that's a that's a little too much because the the list happens to be some of the biggest artists ever. It's like, oh, really? Oh, and he played on the biggest song ever. Hmm, what are the what a, what a coincidence? Well, well, don't forget he wrote "She Loves You," "Helter Skelter," and "Obla di Obla da." <laughs> yes. Oh, did he? That is so. That and I heard he's written rock and roll all night too. It's it's a, such a great song. But uh, while we're on S C O M, as as it's referred to in this post here, wasn't the whole point that um, Slash was doing some kind of warm up exercise or scales or something, and somebody went, "Ooh, what's that sound?" So that whole opening rift, yes. right? So the whole opening rift is Slash's doodle, for the lack of a better word. Yes. And by the way, Hotel California. Dan Huff? That was Dan Huff. Oh, um, that is terrific. But Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh might mumble about that because the um, he had a uh, an exercise that he used to run when warming up, and that exercise became Hotel California. Yeah, you know, uh, um, I, I hear that uh, over at Paisley Park in uh, Minnesota, there is a, a basement filled of uh, Dan Huff uh, Prince songs that are unreleased, <laughs> but terrific. Just terrific. All right, that's enough. I think we made that point. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but I'm just, I, I read this as Dan Huff is a session musician. Huff has worked with many different artists, including, and then it goes, and blah, 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 mentions the opening riff, a sweet child of mine. I was like, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. No. No, 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 no. Can you imagine though if if you got a call from Mike Clink after he heard this and he goes, Alan, Alan, I don't know, I didn't want to tell you this, but yeah, yeah, it's it's Dan, it's Dan. We we I, Slash is not on there at all. Whoops. At which point I'd say you're fired. No more royalties. <laughs> no more royalties. You don't get any more royalties from Appetite. Get out. Oh, oh yeah, those those royalties. Anyway, uh, we, we're way off track with Alda Nova, but the uh, the new album. Uh, it's called The Life and Times of Eddie Gage. And uh, I'll just before we get to that, he's releasing sort of one single a month for the next 21 months because there's like 21 or 22 tracks on this. And so uh, you're going to get a single all the way until like July or August of next year. And then the whole thing will come out. Uh, I always find that interesting because we've talked about this before with uh, John Five and others. 
it just sort of keeps you in the public eye month after month. And then after a couple of months, people are like, ooh, I can't wait for the next whatever, August 1st, because there'll be another song. And ooh, and November 1st, there'll be another song. Um, I think that's a smart move in this day and age. Persistence has always been important to success. There you go. And on that, here is, from his studio downstairs, the one and only, the seul unique, Aldo Nova. Uh, we are here with Aldo Nova to talk about the new rock opera that, of course... Hi, Mitch. Hi. Oh, yeah, well, that would help. Let me start that again. <laughs> <laughs> on the three... Hi, first time, long time? First time, long time? <laughs> COVID, all, COVID. All, all this stuff is uh, th- no. Uh, on three, two, one. Uh, we are speaking with Aldo Nova. Good day. Hi, Mitch. How are you? Pleasure. Uh, I'm doing well, actually. <laughs> in the, good. These wonderful COVID times. Uh, we're here to talk about the life and times of Eddie Gage, the uh, rock opera. Right. It is something that you have been working on for over a decade. Twelve years. Twelve years. Written over a hundred songs for. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about what makes now the apropos time and actually getting it down to. You know, from 100 songs to the 10, 12 that we're going to have. Well, I already had the idea in, two, uh, in 2008 to do it. And I already had written a bunch of songs. Right. And then in 2008, I went into Planet Studios. And I said, listen, can you give me some time? Because my studio, I was just come back from Ireland. Right. So nothing, none of this was set up. So I went in there with a drummer. And I just played everything and the tracks and... Um, and then I had about eight songs, and then over the years I wrote more songs. But then when I was finishing the album, which I finished just in May of this year, I realized that some of those original songs just needed to be touched up. Right. We'd done vocals and stuff like that. But over the years I'd written about 100 songs. So as I wrote a new song, another song would get scrapped. I wrote another song, another song would get, another would get scrapped. So actually the, the basic... Uh, songs for the album were written in 2008, 2013, 2015, and just 2019. And even the last song, when all is said and done, was written on May 12th and released on May 29th. So. Right. In terms of the concept, what is sort of the life? Who is Eddie Gage, essentially? Eddie Gage is actually my alter ego. So his life pretty much mirrors mine. I mean, uh, Eddie Gage is a very young, talented musician, hotshot guitar player that gets signed to a record company and his life goes up, you know, rise to fame, down, down, down. But it's like light and dark. It's not like, uh, it's more about, you know, the, the, he's light, the dark tries to take him over and then comes back, you know, and uh, discovers redemption. But uh, when, I use, when I say dark, I mean like... Um, Hidden antichrists, uh, right. devils, uh, gods, uh, but in their different names. So, yeah. So let me take up on the light and th- the light and dark theme. In terms of messaging, is there a religious connotation to it? Is there just that's the way of the world? Is always sort of good versus evil? Is he fighting somebody in a sense? Well, it's more the light and the dark, which exists everywhere since right. the dawn of time. Uh, it's about. Um, light falling into darkness and eventually finding redemption back into the light, which is important. I guess it has spiritual uh, qualities to it because I figured that you have to, I mean, you have to look at it that way. Right. But in other words, if I said a devil, to me it meant a record company executive. So in other <laughs> words, 
like the song you heard upstairs, Hey Lottie Daddy, right. you know, the guy's a record company exec, but he has higher aspirations. So right. he sings about a new world order and, you know, I'll pretend to be a new messiah and things like that. So. Now, with over 100 songs written, is this sort of the first collection of many, or did you have to write 100 to get the proper ones that go on this album? I mean, well, I had to write 100. Okay. I mean, I, mean, uh, I didn't stop, anyway, for over, over 12 years. And in 2008, I made a conscious decision not to work, write, or do anything for any other artist but myself. I mean, I had enough in 2008. I mean, you right. know. I did everything I could for other artists, but I figured that at that point, I was going to work for me, you know? Right. In fact, let me, let me take up on the working for me thing, because when Twitch came out, one of the complaints was that there was too many guys on it. You had Alan Schwartzberg, you had Anton Fig, you had all kinds of people. Uh, talk to me about the importance of getting your vision on tape for the fans and not having, you know, too many people in involved too many hands in the pot. Well, you, you talk about drummers, and I never could play drums. Right. For the life of me, I can play anything, but drums, I just can't get a handle on it. So, um, Alan Schwarzman and those guys weren't the problem. The problem was the record company. Uh, since I, I did my first album, which did amazingly well, right. then I did Subject, which was actually really radical right. for back then. I mean, people just now are starting to realize that Subject is like a pretty, like, a record that was way ahead of its time. Right. So, but uh, since Subject didn't do as well, because I went like completely opposite to the mainstream, and there they said, well, okay, the next record, uh, well, we're going to, you know, be in control. Right. So rather than than making me do what I want and have me write my own songs, they would actually have me do covers. So in some of the songs, like Heartless and... Uh, uh, long hot summer I had nothing to do with the writing not the lyrics not the music anything so I felt like a stranger in my hometown wow I mean this was not Alan Nova that you're listening to that's interesting so so how important then is it to be in control of the vision because there are a lot of bands where you know they come in and somebody does all the songwriting or today you have 12 people write one song how important is it for you to have that vision and that control for me, it's very important. I mean, I'm a first of all, I'm a I'm a control freak, but I'm uh, I'm a controlled control freak. You're I controlled mean, control freak. I mean, yeah. and back in the '80s and '90s, I mean, they used to call me like uh, like I was severe. I mean, you know, it was like my way or the highway. Over the years, what I've discovered is that I work with people at my level, and I don't like any interference whatsoever. Not interference in the sense I don't like stress. You know what I mean? So I've learned that to work with the, where it's effortless, you have to work with people at your level. Right. So that when you send them something, like the drummer, they'll send you something back that's like, wow, you're like excited to listen to it. So that's what happens with the musicians I work with. Musically, for fans that know you from fantasy, that know you from Blood on the Bricks, what is the new rock up we're going to deliver? Are they going to get sort of those pop hits or is it a darker album? Musically, where did we go? We'll go everywhere from okay. rock, like you heard upstairs, to um, the, of course, the, I've always been known as a, a great ballad, so there'll be like a great rock ballad. On it. But it's different. It's not like the kind of ballad which like A, B, there's a, I, in the album, I don't really tend to write in chords, but in chromatics. 
right. nothing to write single notes, but do chromatically. And um, they'll have even like uh, R&B stuff on it with like no guitars whatsoever. There'll be a uh, 40-piece orchestra with one voice. Wow. And there'll be hip, like techno. Uh, uh, it's, it's like an album that will have something for everybody. It'll probably get slammed by the critics as usual, but I mean, uh, <laughs> we don't need but critics. people will love it because of the, uh, it's a rock solid album. It's got the best of everything, the best playing. Uh, my voice is still there for 64. Actually, I've never sang better. I've right. never been in better shape. And um, so um, everything is top notch. The playing is top notch. The mixing, which I did myself, I did pretty much everything myself. But over the years, I've gotten to be much better at it. Right. Yeah, I learned, I learned, and I learned, and I learned. Uh, so uh, I, the mixing is great. And, of course, like I said, I put the cherry on top and Bob Ludwig put the mastering. Who's a fan? Who's, who's a big fan? So, so after 12 years, first of all, how do you sort of decide that, okay, now it's done? And then what's, what's next for you? Do you go back to making albums like the first one with songs like Fantasy? Or do you go back to making a Blood on Bricks? Or do you go, okay, let's start the next rock opera I think that I don't know right I don't have a clue I really don't know I I think music for me is like something that has to stir the emotions right so something that's going to be you know uh, something that's going to hit you in the chest like a cannon and yet something that'll move something in you so when I hit it I mean in with uh, Eddie Gage I wasn't satisfied because you know, I kept writing different parts of the stories because there's characters like in it, and so I, didn't, I always found it in me that I'm missing one character. I miss. I was missing something that that was gonna bring it like home. So that's why the last song was written on May 12th, even though the album was finished, mastered in, in September 2019. Right. So. so, so you sent them a new track. Now uh, you also had Aldo Nova 2.0. You were going to go out and do some shows. You hadn't done some shows in a while. COVID put a damper on that. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what that means and also getting back to the live stage and going back to performing. I, I would have loved to go back live. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm in the best shape of my life, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I had I have a great band together. We had everything booked. We had, uh, I had booked the flights. I had the shows. Uh, booked. Uh, I had the rehearsal hall booked. Uh, I had the Airbnb booked. Everything was booked. And then at a certain point, um, they just cut it and the borders were closed. And then the shows were canceled and I couldn't do it. But I was just, I'm dying to go back on stage. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was, it was the moment and then it got cut down. Uh, let's go, quickly go back to some of the earlier stuff you've done with uh, John Bon Jovi as a Bon Jovi fan, I have to ask. But you did play on that first record. You had a relationship with Tony Bon Jovi. How did that develop into you having that time to play on the first album? Was it were you doing a, a favor for Tony? Was it hey, I like what John's doing? How did that relationship start? Well, when I met John, he was I was working in Studio A with Tony mixing right. while we were mixing it together, and John the the coffee machine was about. You'd open the door and the coffee machine would be there. So I met him, uh, it was just a kid, uh, over there by the coffee machine, and I didn't know people, the, the rumor goes that he's a janitor, but I'm, never, I'm not so sure what he was. But he'd hang around by the coffee machine. Right. So one day, 
I said, do you, want, do you want to come in and listen to some stuff? So I played him, you know, songs like Fantasy, and it sounded like a cannon. I mean, with Tony Bonchovi, he's like, he, yeah. he designed the power station, so right. he's got a particular sound. He's not, uh, Tony now invented the new speakers that are, the sound comes from a wall. There's no woofer. Uh, they have them in the really? new cars, yeah. They have them in jets <clears throat> so to reduce the weight. So he's a genius. So anyway, getting back to Bon Jovi, we, I brought him in to listen to the album, and he just flipped, obviously. But then his cousin, uh, Tony, uh, had all the connections. So he, they, wanted, they wanted to do a song called Runaway. So Tony put together the Salster band with uh, Roy Bitten on, on piano, uh, another guy on keyboards. Uh, Hugh McDonald? Yeah, Hugh McDonald on bass, which just played on all the Bon Jovi yes. records. Never has a missed one. No, what? He hasn't missed one. He hasn't missed one. Nope. No, even from the beginning to all of them. Even yep. though Alex John Sush got, uh, he was in the band, he right. never played on a record. Yep. Uh, there was uh, Ewan McDonald, there was Tim Pierce on, on guitar, oh, myself on guitar. Yeah, Tim Pierce is a mother. Who was on drum? Was it Chris it, Burton? It was, no. Uh, no, what was his name? Uh, Frankie LaRocca was right. on drums. And that was the band. And so we cut uh, Runaway Live. And then Tim went back and cut his solo. A lot of people, rumor has it that it's me playing his solo, but it's Tim Pierce that's actually playing the solo. And John sang, uh, redid his vocal, and then Lance Quinn produced it. And then after that, when he, uh, when um, I remember being in the office of, uh, of Mercury and uh, uh, Derek Shulman was there from Gentle oh, wow. Giants. Actually, he was sitting in the chair, and I'm the only guy who knew Gentle Giant. So I, I, I shot this shit about Gentle Giant together, and I actually said, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to help him out. And um, then the record came, uh, we were cutting the record, and I did all these background vocals on it with him, and I played some keyboards. So uh, that's about it. Right, and then, uh, so, so let me move over to, to Twitch. We spoke quickly about it that you weren't happy with the way the record company had sort of set it out. You come back to Montreal, you ask to be let out of your contract, and you, you, you come back to here and you start doing TV work and jingle work. Uh, talk to me about that. Was, was that sort of rewarding that you got to come back and do your own thing, or was there a bit of a frustration of like, hey, I'm not making Alda Nova records, I'm still working. Uh, talk to me about that sort of period of time where you came back and said, okay, I'm done with Portrait. I'm done with... Yeah, I was done with Portrait. That's why I came back to Montreal. Right. My mind was made up that I was never going to work for a record company, right. that I didn't have control over my own records or artistic uh, control. So uh, came back to Montreal, uh, moved here, uh, got an apartment, uh, was able to build a studio in the apartment. So it was in a, uh, an apartment, but it was soundproof. So I was able to... Well, you, you heard I left the... Yeah. You, you, concert, love to, you love to play. I had concert-level volumes. So <laughs> uh, I went there. I started making jingles for Chrysler, uh, Coca-Cola. Wow. And I did really well at them. So uh, the a and, and of... And, and by the way, there is a lot of money to be made in that. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, it's not yeah. to be oh, to be scoffed at. It's it's a real industry. Oh, a shitload of money. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I was making more money then than I'm making now, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but also, it, it, it ultimately ends up working out for you because you're introduced to Celine Dion and you exactly. get to... So how does that introduction come? Does, does René Angelil know you from the industry and say, come on out? Uh, how no, does that, that work? Was, that was the A&R, uh, Sony, uh, uh, CBS back then, Vito Loprano, that actually introduced me. Because right. we, had, we had a history... And she came into my studio, and I'd already written one, written one song that I'd done with another artist called Otaversa Miwah. And she loved that song, so then I produced that for her, and two more tracks, one which I wrote called Have a Heart, uh, that, uh, which was called Patricius de Bois, and another song, C'est quoi l'amour? And, uh, and that was incognito, the record, which actually got her launched. Right. But Have a Heart um, was a song that actually got her, her break on her English while she got signed. So, and uh, I forget what year. Did you help her develop the English side? Because yeah, she was we, a very yeah, Francophone of artist. Of course, yeah. Okay. I mean, that song, I coached her and she went on the Junos and performed it. And that's when they actually decided to sign her as an artist in English. Is there, and this might sound like a, an, an un, you know, educated kind of question, but is there a difference in the approach when you're doing a French language song and an English language song? Does, is, do you approach it the same way, or is it written differently, if you understand what I mean? Um, is it a different approach, different mentality? Well, the lyrics are a lot different. I mean, you know, right. they'll take English lyrics and, like, you know, if uh, Luc Plamondon takes a song that's English... He'll make it, uh, he'll just like repeat words and they'll turn the phrases to make them more colorful. And I don't know, I don't, you know, like some are, you know, I think that they think Luke Pamelon is, is good and there's some artists, but they don't really have the, it's not quite as hard as English. English is much more uh, emotive, you know what I mean? It's much yeah. more expressive, you know what I mean? Yeah, and French is a little bit more or romanticized, if you want. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the life and times of Eddie Gage, when it comes to the recording process, how do you sort of get the song down? Are you still old school, where you just sort of set up and play it once and that's done? Or are you all about the Pro Tools? Are you all about the, you know, the, 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 the bells and whistles? How do you sort of approach getting the song to tape? Well, I'm the kind of guy that I read the song on the guitar or the piano, and if the, if the song doesn't hold up with just a song and a piano or a guitar, okay. then the song isn't good. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so everything has to work acoustically first before yeah, it gets to that it, next it, stage. To be a song, I mean, I'm actually a songwriter first. Right. So I write the song musically. I'll be driving and I'll get an idea. Then I'll come home and flesh it out. And then after that, I write the lyrics. And then I'll... Either that or I'll, I'll take the, the, all the music and I'll, but I have a good idea of the title and then I'll go and I'll write tracks and I use the logic and then I'll do an elaborate demo of it, which sounds like a, a record. Right. And then I'll send it down to a drummer and, in Miami. And then I also have a guitar player which played great guitar called Dan Warner who passed away last year. Um, he used to do rhythm guitars and extremely colorful sounds that like really brought the song to life. Right. And so, uh, I mean, they were like my guys. I mean, I used to send them 
tracks of my demos and they sent them back and it was like, wow, I'm excited. You know, I was excited to have music from this guy and it wasn't a letdown. Right. So, and then the song builds from there. And then I replaced all the electronics with the real stuff. But the Eddie Gage album has no, apart from synthesizer parts that I want, has no machines on it. It's all acoustic. Most of the songs okay. have no click tracks. They're just really? like, yeah. Uh, uh, a ballad sometimes, if you play with a click track, you can't, it's square. You know what I mean? Right. It's just like, it's so uh, music has to breathe. So, yes. uh, so a lot of the stuff I ended up doing uh, with just the piano and the vocal all the way through. Right. And then the tracks were built all around that. Right, yeah, yeah. I agree that songs need need some space. Otherwise, they're just, it's too much, too much information. Uh, just going back quickly to John Bon Jovi real quick, Blaze of Glory, of course, the uh, the, the Young Guns movie. Um, how involved were you in that process? Obviously, you were in, you played on some of the tracks, but did you write most of the tracks? And No, there was no writing. It was the first record where John actually wrote every song by himself. Okay. I mean, he was he always had co-writers in the past, whether it be Richie, whether it be Jasmine Child. Um, when we came, when it came to that album, he actually like a played the, the cassette of Blaze of Glory. Yeah, it was actually him. He had written the words and the music, and so uh, with that, like with that little cassette, I went to home on Friday, and he needed it by Monday morning. So I actually played all the instrument that the slides are. And the, uh, the actual finished record sounds exactly like that record. Right. So then I went to John's house, and he had another 10 songs. So I sat in his basement slaving away with a console for three weeks uh, doing all the rest of the demos. And wow. then we flew to Los Angeles, and we got a, an all-star band with uh, Kenny Aronoff on drums, Randy Jackson of... You know, the, American uh, Idol. The American Idol. Who, Journey. Yeah, exactly, who's an amazing bass player. And Journey now, he's back in Journey. <laughs> ben Montench of the Heartbreakers on uh, organ. Um, uh, Wally Wachtel, who's famous for the, the expensive winos with Keith Richards. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Leon Guitar. Wow. So, uh, great band. A great band, yeah. And Little can't, Richard came to play on one track. Can't, can't go wrong there. Um, and Jeff Beck on guitar. So you can't go wrong. Can't go wrong there. Uh, I, well, we'll wrap up on this. The the release for Eddie Gage is, from what I understand, you're going to put out a song on Spotify or a song on streaming once a month, once every couple of months, and run it through until 2021. Uh, talk to me about that approach. It, it, it's smart in the sense that it keeps the, the, the listener always engaged, uh, but it is different. So, so talk to me about that decision to go sort of one at a time and just let people get it slowly well uh, <clears throat> with that um, at the end they'll, I mean it'll keep people interested you right. know it'll engaged keep, it'll keep them engaged actually and anyway at that rate with 23 songs in August of 2021 I'll still be putting out songs right <laughs> so the record after that they'll get it uh, in one shot unless situation changes really in the world where music come back to normal and situation come back to normal. The record, like I said, uh, I recorded it in 12 years. I'm no hurry to put it out. You know, no, no hurry to put it out. <laughs> exactly. In terms of uh, Spotify, though, with the artists, there's a lot of debate about how Spotify <clears throat> doesn't treat artists well. Is that something you worry about or think about or just go, oh, you know what, just put the song on there and whatever? It's been years that you don't make money in music. Right. You know? 
I mean, my my royalties, even even though I have like 15 songs with Celine Dion, because the physical format is gone, ever since they switched to digital and YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music, uh, like on, on 2.0, I have my own record company now because nobody owns my publishing, no, uh, nobody owns the artist, nobody owns uh, the record company. Right. I own everything. I wrote all the songs. So, uh, so I mean, if if just, let's take uh, the 2.0 record, which I was making most of the, the money on. Right. If uh, an album sold 800 copies, I would at 10 bucks a copy, I would make $8,395 U.S. Whereas if it sold 800 copies on Apple Music, I would make $176. So big difference. I mean, well, iTunes takes 30% off the top. Right. So uh, Spotify pays nothing. It's one. Point one one point zero 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 one of a penny per per uh, stream, so and so my royalty rates went down. I mean, you know. Yeah, you can't you can't make a living being a songwriter anymore. You 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 came through at the right time in the eighties and nineties. Exactly. Like yeah. I said, now I have a, uh, you know, I, you know I, I made I made a deal. I sold uh, some of my catalog, so I have a little bit of a cushion for once in my life. I mean, in two thousand and eight, it was either. I'm going to starve and we'll get back to what I was doing or, you know, whore myself out again and make some money. But I didn't, didn't need the stress. I mean, you know, it's like anyway, people, you know, you write the songs, you produce. And most of the time, like with Celine, uh, you have to give her like elaborate demos and she basically copies it like that. So, right. so uh, I, I said I'd rather starve and I did. So... So, but you're here and you've got this beautiful studio. I've got my gear. That's the thing. I've always been top-notch gear. I mean, that's the thing. Even even though I had no money, I had gear. Oh, you still got great gear. And as we say, uh, merci. Thank you. Great pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers. There you go. Look at that. Perfect. 25 minutes on the clock. Albert, are you still in touch with Vito? Yeah, I just got in touch with him uh, last week. He just